Well, this morning we saw that one of the purposes of evangelistic prayer is to trust the gospel. We saw the atonement given through Christ explained in 1 Timothy 2.6 that Christ gave himself as a ransom. This means that he paid for our sins. He freed us from the bondage of sin which had prevented us from having full and free fellowship with God. It prevented our eternal heavenly destiny. And yet his ransom... His payment now made that possible. Full fellowship with God, free fellowship with God, and eternal heavenly destiny. And tonight, we're going to see that the angel of the Lord, in our continuing series backstage before Bethlehem, is now going to give a demonstration of atonement. It's going to paint a picture, as it were, of the atonement. And just so you are, are being made aware of this, we are going straight through the Old Testament in the order that the angel of the Lord appears. And so that's why we spent some time in Genesis and then have worked our way now um, into uh, farther into the Old Testament. But the involvement of the angel of the Lord, and you recall, this is the pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem, Son of God, the eternal Son of God. In this particular case, what we're going to see tonight, we're going to see him in a tougher situation. We're going to see him in a severe act It's severe in that atonement, the payment of a ransom for sin, is made necessary by the sinfulness of man. It's necessary because of us. We've rejected God. We have incurred the wrath of God. And tonight, what we're going to see is that the angel of the Lord, in painting this picture of atonement, does so by being the instrument of God's wrath, being the instrument of the punishment of sin. The one that we know as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, if He is not your Lord and Savior, that means that He will be the means of God's righteous judgment and indignation. And so better for Him to be your Savior. But we're going to see His involvement. It is a direct involvement. It is a jaw-dropping involvement. It is a terrifying involvement. But through this, He will give us a picture of the atonement. Now, I want to do something a little unusual tonight. I mentioned this this morning. I want to have you turn to Two different passages, and we're going to go back and forth simultaneously because they're parallel accounts. So first, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24, and then just a few books forward, we'll go to 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles 21. If you want to uh, grab a piece of a bulletin, tear off a sheet of paper or something, you might stick some bookmarks in there because we are going to go back and forth numbers of times. First and Second Chronicles very much parallels much of the content of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. It's written for different theological purposes, but a lot of the stories coincide with one another. And it's not unlike the four gospel accounts: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the accounts of Jesus Christ, which open the New Testament. We have four different views, four different theological purposes. So, where are we right now in biblical history? We need to set the stage just very briefly. We are near the end of the 40-year reign of the great King David. He had, in the first few years of his reign, been reigning over part of Israel, and then Israel was finally unified. We tend to have a picture that the 12 tribes of Israel were always one big happy family. They weren't. They very often tended to be nationalistic, more like colonies themselves. But under David, for the first time, they were really united for a total of 40 years. And now, during the end of His reign, right near the end, David wants to take stock of his kingdom. He wants to take inventory, but God is not going to be happy with this. 
And in this situation in which the angel of the Lord will figure prominently, God is going to give this picture, this demonstration of atonement. But as I mentioned, atonement is necessary because of sin and wrath. And so I have a simple focus tonight. Just three things we want to look at. We want to look at the wrath of God deserved, the wrath of God demonstrated, and the wrath of God diverted. So the wrath of God deserved, the wrath of God demonstrated, and the wrath of God diverted. And all of this will demonstrate atonement. And I'll explain that near the end. So let's look first at the wrath of God deserved. The wrath of God deserved. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. In other words, take a census. Count them. But then we get a fuller view of the invisible spiritual realm. 1 Chronicles 21.1 Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So which is it? Is it 2 Samuel 24, the Lord is inciting David? Or is it 1 Chronicles 21, Satan is inciting David? Well, this is a classic example of God using Satan's schemes for his own purposes, for his own reasons. And of course, Satan would like nothing more than to come against Israel, to come against God's anointed king, David. Satan always thinks he's going to get something out of this deal, and he never gets anything. You remember in our current series, or recent series rather, on Satan and the schemes, we saw that Satan came against Israel every opportunity he could, and his main purpose was to try to prevent Messiah from being born. Who is Messiah descended from? He's descended from David. If he can bring a curse on David and on his line, then perhaps Messiah won't be born. But as usual, what Satan meant for evil is in the overall purposes of God. James 1.13 says that God tempts no one with evil. Satan does that, and God uses that temptation for his own bigger purposes. Now, I might say this, just as a little theological side note here. This dichotomy where we sometimes try to help God out by separating him from anything that brings us discomfort, that's more of a modern phenomenon. If you ask the average faithful Jew in the time of David about God, Here's what the average faithful Jew believed. He believed that all things came from the hand of God, whether great blessings or terrible curses. It was very simple. And that God was always good no matter what he did. I think that's a simple way to have a great theology. They didn't really try to separate God as only doing the good things and Satan is only doing the hard things. They didn't make that separation. To them, God was the ultimate reason for everything. In other words, they believed in the ultimate sovereignty of God they tended to believe God when he said, for example, in Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And the average faithful Jew would say, yes, that makes perfect sense. But now you notice that David is merely the means by which God is going to punish Israel. The anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel. Now, this particular text doesn't tell us why. But the reader who's familiar with the Old Testament to this point, really, you have a buffet of options to choose from. If you know your Old Testament, well, it could have been disobedience, could have been idolatry, could have been covenant treachery, could have been intermarrying with foreign women. It could have been religious actions without internal faith. All kinds of ways we've seen Israel has been unfaithful. So you almost can leave that detail behind. There are a couple of possibilities kind of close to this time period 2 Samuel 21 records a time 
Recently, when the Lord brought three years of famine to Israel, the reason was that Israel had made a covenant with the Gibeonites to let them live, but King Saul slaughtered many of them anyway, the king before David, and now the Gibeonites had cried out for justice. And finally, to atone for that sin and to satisfy the Gibeonites, David executed two of Saul's sons and five of his grandsons. That's a possibility, but it also seems that David had taken care of that already. It could also be that a national pride had formed, independent of reliance upon God. I think the coming verses are going to show us that at this moment, Israel has the military capability of a full-on empire. They are comparable to the Egypts or the Assyrias of the ancient Near East. And so there could have been a national pride. That's, that's a very likely possibility as well. Many other theories have been put forward as to what the sin was that incited God. But the silence on the text tells us, in the text, tells us that the reason for God's anger isn't the most important feature. That's not the point. But just to say this, I want to make certain we understand that it's wrong to assume that God is obligated to be completely transparent with us. Where where is that? Do you have a signed statement by God in the back of your Bible saying, I promise that this is the whole truth, nothing but the truth? It is the truth. It's not the whole truth. I don't think we could fit all the truth of God into a book that is about an inch thick. He says, in fact, in Isaiah 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This gets us into trouble sometimes when maybe we assume that because we fully don't understand something that it can't be true. That if we can't fully understand the reasoning behind an an eternal hell for the lost, then we feel the need maybe to alter that truth or try to soften that truth. That if we can't fully understand that God requires a true human decision to follow him, and yet he chose us before the foundation of the world, then we feel the need to alter that truth. That if we can't fully understand how the Bible is the sole and the singular source of all of our spiritual authority as the inerrant and infallible inspired word of God, then we succumb to the temptation to share spiritual authority with other sources. Well, the Bible says this, and Fox News says this. How do we understand that the Bible was authored by men and the Holy Spirit simultaneously? How do we understand that Jesus Christ is fully a human being, just like us, and fully, completely God, not like us at all? How do we understand the paradox that Christians are to be salt and light to a dying world and yet the world will continue to get worse and worse until Christ returns? How would Isaiah understand God calling him to a 60-year ministry which would yield basically zero results and end up with him being sawn in two? How would Hosea understand God using him to send a message to Israel and telling him, go marry the town prostitute? How would Ezekiel understand God telling him to send a message to Israel. How, Lord? I want you to lay on one of your sides for 390 days. And when you get uncomfortable, turn over for another 40. How do we understand this? And I think a good question to ask ourselves is, will we only worship a God that we believe gives us the inside scoop on everything? Or will we worship a God who's bigger than we can comprehend, more complex than the very universe that he created I think we must default to worshiping a God that is beyond our understanding. 
And so now the Lord is going to express his wrath against Israel and he's going to use David as a reason to do so. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 2 and 3. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Now again, we're not told what the precise problem with this census is, but we're led to understand that it's sinful in some way because David's commander, Joab, he even gets it. He completely disagrees with this. And in fact, he knows it's not just going to bring guilt on David, it's going to bring guilt on all of Israel. First Chronicles 21, verse 3. He says at the end of his, he, this tax on this extra phrase that Joab said, at the very end of verse 3, why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? And so Joab gets it. This is going to bring guilt on all of Israel. But Joab is loyal to his king, and even under protest, he carries out this census. Probably a likely somewhat pragmatic explanation is that David is anticipating setting up his future dynasty and he's assessing how powerful his kingdom is now. And poor old Joab, he wastes almost a year on this. A whole year just working his way counterclockwise geographically through Israel. And we see that in 2 Samuel 24, 5 through 7. Now in 2 Samuel 24, verse 8, look how much... Time was spent. 2 Samuel 24, 8. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. What a waste. Waste of time. And so now Joab comes back with totals. And we learn something new, that he wasn't just counting people. More specifically, he was counting military-aged men. And that might be the problem that God is having with David, that David is trying to assess his own strength through military-aged men, and the results are astounding. Israel is truly a mighty power in the region now. They have more than double the fighting force that they came out of Egypt with just a few hundred years earlier. They have a massive army. 2 Samuel 24, 9. And Joab gave the, gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Now, we come to a seeming discrepancy between the two accounts, which is part of the interesting, uh, interesting challenge of parallel accounts. First Chronicles 21, 5 and 6 says, And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people of David. In all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah 470,000 who drew the sword. And it's at this point that people tend to say, Aha, see, there's a mistake in the Bible. Well, first of all, let's note here that the fact that the Bible is written by 40 different authors over 1,600 years and yet is absolutely consistent in its theme, in its content, in its storyline, in its history, in its theology, completely consistent. This is one of the greatest works of the providence of God ever that this could happen. And given the fact that countless copies of the original manuscripts have been made over the years, by fallible humans, we can expect there to be some questions and maybe even some challenges with the parallel accounts of the same events. 
Like, for example, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called synoptic gospels because they parallel one another. They're, they're similar. In those three gospels, there are 230 places where all three gospels record the same event or the same conversation. Sometimes they're recorded in the same order. Sometimes they're recorded in a different order. There's no gospel rule book that says the chronology has to always be the same. Now, liberal theologians, particularly beginning in about in the middle of the 1800s, began to assume that these 230 places of what we call triple tradition were somehow a problem. If there was any slight variation to how a single event was recorded. But you know what's been found? And this doesn't surprise us. In every single instance of triple tradition where there seems to be a slight variation, there is a reasonable, plausible, and sensible explanation. We might not know which one it is, but there is always an explanation. Now, I'll give you an example. In Matthew chapter 28, at the resurrection of Christ, we see one angel at the tomb of Jesus. In Luke, there are two angels. And some of you might say, aha, the biblical writers can't count to two. Well, which one is it? This one is among the simpler of the solutions. There are many interactions which happen one after another after another at the tomb of Jesus Christ. At some of them, there was one angel and some of them had two. It's really that simple. The Bible contains no verifiable contradictions whatsoever. Why? Because the word of God is inerrant. It is absolutely inerrant. And parallel accounts that seem to differ always have reasonable and plausible explanations. I want to give you one for this census situation. This is not so you can remember the details and go home and, and have your, your, your math itch scratched. That's not the point here. I just want you to remember that God's word is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And if God wanted one account to say 800,000 and 500,000 and the other one to say 1,100,000 and 470,000, that's what he meant to do. So here's the explanation. Probably the best one. 2 Samuel says 800,000 fighting men in Israel and 500,000 in Judah. That's one tribe of Israel, probably the biggest one at that time. These are obviously rounded figures. Scripture is free to round figures when the exact number isn't as important. Then 1 Chronicles says there are 1.1 million men in Israel and 470,000 in Judah. So let's deal, first of all, with the difference between the 800,000 and the 1.1 million. Israel already had a standing army of 288,000 men. They were to have 24,000 each from 12 tribes. 1 Chronicles 27 tells us this. Plus, they were to have 12,000 men for Jerusalem and the chariot cities. 2 Chronicles 1.14. 288,000 plus 12,000 is 300,000. So very simply, if you do not include the standing army that's already there, there are 800,000 more fighting men. If you do include them, there are 1.1 million fighting men. It's a matter of which number you choose to pick. They're both the same. There's a couple of other potential explanations as well, including the fact that Joab chose not to count the men of the tribes of Levi or Benjamin. That's another issue that may contribute to this. 21 verse 6, 1 Chronicles 21 verse 6 says that. Well, then what's the difference between the 500,000 men of Judah in 2 Samuel 24 and the 470,000 men of 1 Chronicles 21? Probably the best solution is that a special army of Judah was raised up when David brought the ark to Jerusalem. And this army consisted, 2 Samuel 6, of 30,000 men. If you count those, 
you get 500,000 fighting men in Judah. If you don't count them because they're already established, you get 470,000 fighting men in Judah. There's probably a dozen other plausible solutions. The point is, is that God's word is accurate. And the bigger point is that these are a lot of men. This is a lot. This is a massive fighting force. At this time in the ancient Near East, Israel probably had the largest army on planet Earth. They were Egypt. They were Assyria. They were like the Hittites of old. Now, if you're the king that used to be a shepherd, what's that going to do to your pride? That's going to swell it up. And after receiving this information, what happened to David? We praise the Lord for this. He was convicted of sin in his own heart. And what I love is that he was convicted before anybody told him. It was of the Lord. 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly parallel account first chronicles 21 verse 8 and david said to god i've sinned greatly in that i have done this thing but now please take away the iniquity of your servant for i have acted very foolishly in the old testament to act foolishly is to say i'm acting like i don't have faith in god the fool has said in his heart there is no god And so he is acknowledging, I acted like I'm not reliant upon the God who made me, the God who made this nation. I am instead acting like somebody who's reliant on himself. Do you notice this? If there was ever a place in history that a man could say, the devil made me do it, it could be this time. But David doesn't do that. He doesn't blame anybody but himself. He's culpable. He's responsible for his own sin. David was the eighth son of Jesse. He was a nobody doing nothing except keeping sheep. And at God's direction, the prophet Samuel came and anointed David king over Israel. The David who slew Goliath by the grace of God. The David who avoided Saul's murderous intentions by the grace of God. The David who united a divided Israel into one united kingdom by the grace of God, uniting all the tribes. And the David of whom Israel sang that he has slain his ten thousands all by the gracious hand of God. And apparently, David now wanted to marvel in his own might at the end of his reign, forgetting that God had said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. At this census, at least as far as the fighting force, they're the most of all peoples. But David was to remember that where they came from, that they came from nothing. And now God's wrath is coming to Israel because of Israel's rebellion and God gives a final straw in the form of David's sinful act of the census and the wrath of God will be completely deserved. And can I say this about us? Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. James 2.10 says, Forever, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. You have failed God at every turn. You were born with a sin nature and you proved it when you were a small child. By the time you were old enough to say your first words, you had already, one of those first words had been no. 
And you showed your rebellion. And every all of you precious young parents who have babies and babies on the way, you think maybe mine will be the first that grows up without a sin nature. And they're so cute. They're cute so that you don't try to give them back. Because they will annoy you and irritate you. And you go, this little thing is this big and he's giving me high blood pressure. How is that possible? It's because they're sinners. So are you and you are condemned. Isaiah 64, 6 says, even our attempts at doing good are disgusting to God. Because a human being who is inherently not good cannot do anything to please God. Listen, the wrath of God headed toward the unrepentant is fully deserved, fully merited. Every moment in hell will be completely earned. Every moment. The wrath of God is deserved. Well, now we see the wrath of God demonstrated. The wrath of God demonstrated. 2 Samuel 24, verse 11. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Three years of famine shall come to you. Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. The role of the prophet in Israel was often to represent God to the king. And the king was supposed to rule on God's behalf, trusting the Lord and doing his will. So the prophet had a unique role in that he came and told the king what he was supposed to do, gave him instructions from God. Now the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21 is essentially identical here. Basically, God gives three options. And this is a chilling moment because the prophet Gad tells David, God is going to do something horrible to you, but he, he'll let you choose which one it is. That's great parenting, by the way. You say it with just calm and a smile. I'm going to do something to you. Here's three options. Which one would you like? That's righteousness. But here are the three options. Three years of famine, three years of running before his enemies, or three, three months of running before his enemies, rather, or three days of pestilence, of disease, killing men. Well, David, in his mind, quickly categorizes these. Option two, three months of running before his enemies, places him at the mercy of men. Options one and three, three years of famine or three days of pestilence, places him in the hand of God. And so David opts and he throws the choice back to God. I would like either option one or three because that places me in your mercy. That places me in your hand. 2 Samuel 24, 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Dan, the farthest north point. Beersheba, the farthest southern point. 70,000 of these fighting men. That's a lot. If you added up the highest possible total of the numbers of fighting men that Joab came up with, you would have about 1.6 million men. Instantly, 70,000 of them are gone. And that tells you how quickly God can take out that which he has built up. 
And this puts a whole new perspective on any pride that David may have had. Now, this is very likely just the first day of the three, because look what's about to happen. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 24. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So who is the angel? This is the angel of the Lord. This is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God before Bethlehem. First Chronicles 21.15 gives us some insight. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. Ornon is just a variation of Arana, sort of like John or Jonathan. So why did the angel of the Lord stop? Why didn't he continue the pestilence to completely wipe out Jerusalem? Why did he stop? Well, David is given a unique unique opportunity and that is to be given spiritual sight to see the angel of the lord and it was a terrifying sight first chronicles 21 16 and david lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the lord standing between earth and heaven and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over jerusalem in other words in a pose where he is about to do something wrathful But why did God the Father command God the Son, the angel of the Lord, to stop, to time out, to cease? 1 Chronicles 21, 15, the Lord saw. What did the Lord see? Again, in verse 16, and David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Here's what the Lord saw. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. They saw David and his chiefs on their faces before God in the sackcloth of mourning their own sin, mourning the wrath of God. And the wrath of God was stopped at the threshing floor of Arana. David intercedes now on behalf of his people back in 2 Samuel 24, verse 17. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let, please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Slight side note here. Do you see the atonement painted here? Don't take out your wrath on these. Take it out on me instead. That's atonement. This is a fabulous reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way, as David sees him, still hovering over Jerusalem with his sword drawn. It's a fabulous reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ is not the softer, gentler, kinder version of God the Father. Christ is zealous for his Father's glory. He's zealous for his righteousness. His role as the executor of God's judgment is completely consistent with what Jesus said in John 5, beginning of verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
But then Jesus gives the good news that avoiding judgment is possible. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so now, God, the Lord saw David and his elders in sackcloth, bent down, bowed down before him, and the wrath of God paused. But listen very carefully. It paused, but it wasn't satisfied. God didn't look on the penitence of David and his leaders as a work which would save them. He didn't say at that moment, angel of the Lord, put your sword away, because look, they're bent down, they're bowing down to me. What would save them was not simply saying, I'm sorry. The sin still had to be paid for. There still had to be remittance. So we've seen the wrath of God deserved. We see the wrath of God demonstrated in the killing of 70,000 and the potential destruction of Jerusalem. Now we'll see the wrath of God diverted. The wrath of God diverted. The course changed. 2 Samuel 24, 18. Now I want to read this whole section to you. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, why is my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king Take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So this farmer who owned this little piece of land, owned this threshing floor, Arana generously offers to give David all of the animals, all of the wood from the yoke and from the threshing sledges needed to make the sacrifice required by God for the atonement of Israel's sin. But David refuses. He insists on buying not only the oxen, but also the yokes and the the sledges for wood but also buying the threshing floor itself and all the land that it was on. To just receive it as a gift would really deny the whole idea of sacrifice, wouldn't it? It's sort of like saying, I'm a Christian, but I'll never put a nickel in the offering plate because it's not worth anything to me. That makes no sense. Now, the threshing floor, it was just an open outdoor area. This is nothing fancy at all. It it would be akin to just a big flat space. The best place to have a, fl- a threshing floor was at the top of a hill or the top of a mountaintop because the sheaves of grain would be laid out and they're either beaten with a flail or in this case they're threshed by having oxen drag a heavy what they call a sledge around on it. That sledge would be weighted with heavy stones and it would separate the chaff from the grain. The grain would stay at the top and the chaff would just blow away and go down the hill. So that's why being at the top of a hill was was the best place. Now, this particular threshing floor was at the top of a small mountain, a very good place to offer a sacrifice. Second Samuel here says David paid 50 shekels of silver. First Chronicles 21 says David paid 600 shekels of gold. 
But it says for the sight. What does this mean? Well, it means he paid both. He paid 50 shekels of silver. It's about one and a half pounds of silver for the oxen and the yoke and the sledge for all the wood. And he paid 600 shekels of gold for all the land surrounding the threshing floor. And so now David owned this little mountaintop and the land surrounding it. This place where the wrath of God stopped at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And David offers his sacrifices. 2 Samuel 24, verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. What does it mean that the Lord responded to the plea for the land? We have to remember the whole picture here. The threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, is just outside the walls of Jerusalem at the time. Now, you have to understand the history of Jerusalem. It started as a small little town, and the walls expanded over the centuries that they would build on more and more. At this particular time, the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, is outside the walls of Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's still hovering over the city. He still has his sword out, and he's poised for judgment, and David can see him as this sacrifice is being given. And remember, the wrath of God is only paused. It hasn't been satisfied yet. But once the sacrifice is made, the Lord responded. How did he respond? First Chronicles 21, verse 26. First Chronicles 21, 26, And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. Only when sacrifice was made and God accepted the worship of David based on that sacrifice did the sword of the wrath of God go back into its sheath. And I would remind all of us that we do not worship God because we think it's a good idea. We do not worship God because he somehow is impressed by our worship. We only worship God because the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay for that privilege. That's the only reason. If the wrath of God is not satisfied, if sin is not atoned for, Psalm 7 verse 12 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. That at this very moment, for all who reject Christ, for all who are outside of the Lord, to reject the good news of Jesus Christ and his death, to make sacrifice of sin for all of those, the sword of God is unsheathed. He is hovering over you. The bow of God is creaking and moaning, waiting to be released, eager to let fly the fiery arrows of judgment. That's the situation for those who have not come to faith in Christ. We could easily just preach this whole message on the wrath of God and it has warnings in and of itself. But remember, what we're looking at is the fact that the Lord is demonstrating atonement. He's demonstrating atonement. Now, at first glance, it seems that the main purpose of the angel of the Lord has been to dispense wrath. And that he has. But remember, the wrath stopped at the threshing floor of Arana. Let me show you two ways that this account demonstrates atonement. The first one we'll call the wrath sandwich. 
And I'm telling you that because you'll remember it. The wrath sandwich. Look at 2 Samuel 24, verse 15. This is the climactic moment of the whole scene. 2 Samuel 24, 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. The slaying of 70,000 in a day. This is horrific. But if the wrath of God is the meat of the sandwich, look at the bread on either side. Verse 14, Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. And the other piece of bread, verse 16, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented. It's mercy. You have the meat of wrath in between, but it is sandwiched by the bread of mercy on either side. It's the same in 1 Chronicles 21. Look with me at verse 14. Again, the climactic moment. 1 Chronicles 21, 14. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And again, the bread. Verse 13. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is very great. And verse 15. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. The mercy of God on either side. In both accounts, David finds comfort by throwing himself on the mercy of God. And he's not disappointed. God relents. God stops. But as we've seen, God would be unjust if he simply decided not to exact rightful payment for sin. And so while in his mercy he pauses judgment, the wrath must be directed. It must be diverted to a worthy sacrifice. There's a second way this story demonstrates atonement. The substitutionary sacrifice is offered at the threshing floor of Arana. The wrath of God stops at the threshing floor of Arana. We get kind of an epilogue at the end of 1 Chronicles 21. Look with me at verse 28. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan or Arana, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it, meaning to Gibeon, to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. What does this mean? The usual place of sacrifice had been Gibeon. But now David switched. He saw that the wrath of God had stopped at the threshing floor of Arana, which David now owned, and he owned all the land around it, just outside the city of Jerusalem as it was in David's day. And now verse 28 says he sacrificed there, meaning from then on he sacrificed there. This was his place of worship. This is where he would meet with God. This is where he would be made right before God through sacrifice, through shed blood. Why is this location so important? The angel of the Lord has been here before. He was here 900 years earlier. The threshing floor of Arana is located at the very top of Mount Moriah. The same place that Abraham offered Isaac. But God, the angel of the Lord, called out from heaven and stopped him from offering Isaac. And what did he do? He provided a substitute sacrifice. This is the same plot of land that David, who owns it now, would turn over to his son Solomon. And he would give it to Solomon to do what with it? Look at 1 Chronicles 22, verse 1. 
Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This would be the site of Solomon's temple. What Jesus would call my father's house. And the same angel of the Lord who had been in midair with his sword drawn over Jerusalem would mourn Jerusalem, his beloved. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew twenty three thirty seven, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing In this very temple, on that site, the Lord Jesus Christ would make his offer over and over and over again of salvation by grace, by faith in him. And in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus would be tried and just outside the walls executed, ultimately to pay for the sins of many of the very people who were in favor of his death. And his own sacrifice would stop the wrath of God. Where? At the threshing floor of Arana. Geography in the Bible matters. And someday, once again, the Lord Jesus Christ will hover over Jerusalem, fully armed for war again. Only this time it won't be to judge Jerusalem, it'll be to defend her. Zechariah 14, Revelation 19 tells us that Christ will come to defend his people against Antichrist. The Lord Jesus will return in full battle array. He'll land on the Mount of Olives, the same place from which he ascended into heaven. Today, the threshing floor of Arana is occupied by a mosque and the Dome of the Rock. I don't know, and the Bible doesn't tell us, but my guess is that when the Lord Jesus returns, that mosque is going to be one of the first things blown off the map by the very word of the one that David knew as the angel of the Lord the one we know as the King of Kings. And then there will be peace in Jerusalem. Peace in Jerusalem as a redeemed Israel occupies her rightful place under the care of their king, descended humanly from whom? From David, from Solomon. And Jerusalem will be the place of glory and joy and delight. Why? Because the wrath of God stopped at the threshing floor of Arana. The angel of the Lord right in the middle of it, as always. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this demonstration of atonement. We thank you that we were not among, as it were, the 70,000. We thank you that your wrath stopped as the judge hovered over us, as the sword of the judgment of God was close and was near. And yet, because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would have been our judge, The sword of your judgment is sheathed. The arrows extinguished. The bow put away. And instead your arms open. For us to be welcomed into your heavenly kingdom. Welcomed into your very throne room. Welcomed into your presence. Welcomed into your family. Welcomed into your people. We thank you for the atonement provided by the death of Jesus Christ. We thank you Lord. That so many thousands of years ago you saw fit to designate this little piece of land as the place where the wrath of God would stop against all who would have faith in the one that David knew as the angel of the Lord and the one that we know as Jesus. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.